0: I am Pengsheng Qian, the Editor-in-Chief of Heart Rhythm. The January 2018 issue of Heart Rhythm has a featured article entitled LA Appendage Angiography is associated with the incidence and number of MRI-detected brain lesions after percutaneous castor-based LA appendage closure, written by writing and co-authors from Berlin, Germany. An author interview conducted by Dr. Dan Maureen can be found on the www.heartrhythmjournal.com website. The purpose of this study was to evaluate the incidence of MRI-detected acute brain lesions as well as potential changes in neurocognitive function after percutaneous LA appendage closure in patients with AF. They found 37 acute brain lesions in roughly 50% of the patients after LA appendage closure. The number of peri-procedural LA appendage angiographies was significantly higher in patients with brain lesions than those without brain lesions. The authors conclude that MRI detected acute brain lesions are commonly observed after percutaneous LA appendage closure. And are associated with the number of AAF appendage on geographies. A second paper is clinical effectiveness of a systematic pill-in-the-pocket approach for the management of paroxysmal AF by Andrade and co-authors from University of British Columbia, Vancouver, Canada. This is a CME article. The purpose of this study was to assess the clinical utility of a protocol pill-in-the-pocket approach to manage patients with symptomatic sustained AF within contemporary practice. All patients were given an AV nodal blocker 30 minutes prior to a single oral dose of a class 1C anti drug. They have 30 patients with successful initial pill-in-the-pocket therapy of AF. 159 out of a hospital pill-in-the-pocket treatments occurred. This approach reduced emergency department visits and the need of cardioversion. Adverse events include presyncope in 3, syncope necessity in pacemaker implantation in 1, and a conversion to flutter in 1 the authors conclude that the out-of-hospital pill-in-the-pocket approach can be an effective therapy for highly selected patients. However, the rates of treatment failure and adverse events are clinically relevant, which limits the widespread use of pill-in-the-pocket approach. The next article, is Spectrum of Atrial Arrhythmias Using the Ligament of Marshall in Patients with Atrial Fibrillation, by Cho et al. from University of Michigan and Nauber, Michigan. The authors studied 56 patients with ligament marshall related arrhythmias. Among them, ligament Marshall PV connection was present in 32% and the ligament Marshall. Mediated atrial tachycardia was present in 23% of the patients. RF ablation and the veno martial alcohol injection were useful in eliminating the Ligament Martial PV connection and the atrial tachycardia. The authors conclude that the Ligament Martial is responsible for a variety of arrhythmia mechanisms in patients with AF and atrial tachycardia. It may be ablated at any point along its course, at the mitral annulus, at the lateral ridge and the PV unction, and the epicardially in the coronary sinus and the venom marshal itself. Alcohol ablation of the venom marshal may be an adjunctive strategy in patients with refractory perimitral reentry. The next article is Electrogram signature of specific activation patterns, analysis of atrial tachycardias at high density endocardial mapping by from Terra et al from Bordeaux, France. The authors performed high density atrial mapping in 25 patients during atrial tachycardias. The bipolar electrogram characteristics were compared with the patterns of activation. They found that the high-voltage and short-duration electrograms are associated with collision sites and pivot sites that are unlikely to form critical sites for ablation. On the other hand, long-duration, low-voltage electrograms are associated with slow conduction. However, not all slow conduction regions will lie within the critical circuit. Therefore, ablation cannot be guided only by electrogram characteristics. The next article is pulmonary sinus cusp mapping and ablation, a new concept and approach for idiopathic right ventricular outflow tract arrhythmias by Zhang et al. from Wuhan, China. The purpose of this study was to assess whether mapping and ablation in pulmonary sinus cusps might be an appropriate first-choice treatment in unselected patients with idiopathic RVOT ventricular arrhythmias. The authors prospectively studied 90 consecutive patients. They found that in 90% of the patients, the earliest activation of ventricular arrhythmias was found in pulmonary sinus cusp. Ablation resulted in elimination of ventricular arrhythmias without any additional ablation in the RVOT region underneath the pulmonary vein. In the remaining 10% of the patients, final successful ablation sites were in the aortic coronary cusps in five and at the lowest and most posterior part of the RVOT in four. Your mean follow-up of 15 months Single procedural success rate was 96.7%. The authors concluded that a strategy based on pulmonary sinus cusp mapping and ablation eliminated 90% of unselected idiopathic RVOT type ventricular arrhythmias with favorable midterm effectiveness. An accompanying editorial by Shah and Scheinman from San Francisco. Thought it is remarkable that nearly all unselected patients with the diagnosis RVOT arrhythmias had successful ablation in the pulmonary valve sinuses. This paradigm shift may have a significant impact in our ablation strategy and outcomes for this common arrhythmia. The next article is entitled Successful Ventricular Tachycardia Ablation in Patients with Electrical Storm Reduces Recurrences and Improves Survival by Vergara and co-authors from Milan, Italy. They have data from 1940 patients undergoing VT ablation. Among them, 677 have electrical storm. They found that the patients with electrical storm have a higher risk of VT recurrence and mortality. Patient the procedure characteristics are consistent with advanced cardiac disease and longer and more complex procedures. In patients with electrical storm, acute procedural success is associated with a significant reduction of VT recurrence and improved one year survival. The next article is entitled Cardiac Sympathectomy for the Management of Ventricular Arrhythmia's Refractory to Castor Ablation by Richardson et al. of Vanderbilt University, Tennessee. They reported seven cases who had failed prior castor ablation or had disease not not amenable to ablation. All patients had ventricular arrhythmia's refractory to antiarrhythmic drugs with a median arrhythmia burden of one episode of sustained ventricular arrhythmias per month. There were no acute complications of sympathectomy. No patient has sustained ventricular arrhythmias after sympathectomy at a median follow-up of seven months. This series of patients illustrates the cardiac sympathetic denervation may be a viable treatment option for patients with a variety of etiologies of ventricular arrhythmias. The limitation of the study is the small number of cases and the short duration of follow-up. However, these data add to the growing list of literature that suggests the value of cardiac sympathetic in managing ventricular arrhythmias. The next article is entitled The Incidence and Significance of Adhesions Encountered During Epicardial Mapping and Ablation of VT in Patients with No History of Prior Cardiac Surgery or uh, Pericarditis by Lee et al. from UCLA. The authors reported that in 155 first-time epicardial access attempts, pericardial adhesions were diagnosed in 8% of the patients. They found that adhesions may be unexpectedly encountered in patients without prior cardiac surgery or pericarditis. When present, they can limit mapping and may be associated with lower short-term success. The next article is Outcomes of Rescue Cardiopulmonary Support for Periprocedural Acute Hemodynamic Decompensation in Patients Undergoing Castor Ablation of Electrical Storm by Enrique Cerro from University of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia. The authors reported 21 patients with electrical storm who were referred for castor ablation and had periprocedural acute hemodynamic decompensation requiring emergent ECMO support. They found that patients with electrical storm undergoing castor ablation, the outcomes of ECMO support as rescue intervention are poor. 16 patients died within 10 days, mostly due to refractory heart failure. The study is limited by small number of the patients. Therefore, a detailed assessment of the possible benefits of rescue ECMO support in different subsets of patients was not possible. The next article is entitled Idiopathic ventricular arrhythmias originating from the right coronary sinus. Prevalence, electrocardiographic and electrophysiological characteristics and castor ablation by Wang et al. from Beijing, China. The ventricular arrhythmias came from right coronary cusp in 27 from the septal aspect of right ventricular outfit outflow tract in 50 and from left coronary cusp cusp, in nine patients in this study. The authors found that the only ECG characteristic that differentiated the ventricular arrhythmias originating from the right coronary cusp and RVOT was the amplitude of the R-wave in lead one. The distance between the His bundle and the earliest activation site in the right coronary cusp group was shorter than that in the RVOT and the left coronary cusp group Most of the successful ablation sites were located in the anterior and upper margin of the right coronary cusp close to the middle posterior septal region of the RVOT The authors conclude that right coronary cusp ventricular arrhythmias are not uncommon and have unique electrocardiographic and electrophysiological characteristics. Most right coronary cusp ventricular arrhythmias were ablated successfully in the anterior and upper aspects of the right coronary cusp. The next article is entitled Castor Ablation as a Treatment of AV Block by Tui et al. From Cleveland Clinic. The authors report a 55 year old woman presented with highly symptomatic, high burden second degree AV block due to concealed and manifest junctional premature beats. EP characteristics indicated interference of AV conduction due to a concealed ventricular nodal pathway as a cause of the AV block. RF castor ablation of the pathway was successful in restoring normal AV conduction and in eliminating her clinical symptoms. The authors conclude that pathways inserting into the AV junction can interfere with AV conduction. When present at a high burden, this type of AV block can be highly symptomatic. Castor ablation techniques can be used to alleviate this type of AV block and restore normal AV conduction. Since the authors reported only a single case, whether or not there are other patients with this type of AV block remains unknown. The next article is entitled Circadian Variability Patterns, Predict and Guide PVC Ablation Procedural Inducibility and Outcomes. By Harmon et al. from UCLA. Infrequent intra procedural PVCs may impede RF ablation outcome, and the pharmacological induction is unpredictable. The authors used Holter recording to classify the PVCs into fast heart rate dependent PVC, slow heart rate dependent PVC, and the PVCs independent of heart rate. About half of the 100 patients had a fast heart rate dependent PVCs and only this group of patients respond, responded to isoproterenol by increasing PVC frequency. Long-term RF ablation success rate in patients with frequent PVCs at the baseline was similar to those with infrequent PVC who responded to a drug, but significantly higher than For those who did not respond to any drug. The authors conclude that a simple analysis of Holter-PVC circadian variability proves provides incremental value to guide pharmacological induction of PVCs during RF ablation and predict outcomes. The next article is entitled The Updated Meta-Analysis on, of Novel Oral Anticoagulants versus Vitamin K Antagonists for Uninterrupted Anticoagulation in AF Gastroablation by Cardoso et al. from Johns Hopkins Medical Institutions, Baltimore, Maryland. They analyzed 12 studies with a total of roughly 5,000 patients. They found that in patients undergoing AF ablation, uninterrupted peri-procedural pr- novel oral anticoagulants are associated with a low instance of stroke or TIA and a significant reduction of major bleeding as compared with uninterrupted vitamin K antagonists. The next article is entitled Pediatric Survivors Of out of hospital ventricular fibrillation, etiologies, and outcomes by Silka et al. from Children's Hospital and USC, Los Angeles, California. The purpose of this study was to describe the causes and outcomes of pediatric patients with documented VF at resuscitation from out of hospital cardiac arrest with sustained return of spontaneous circulation after defibrillation, and survival to hospital admission. They found 45 patients fulfilling that criteria. Among them, 40 of these 45 patients, or 89%, survived resuscitation to hospital discharge. During 72 months of follow-up, 38% of survivors had a normal neurological outcome. The author concluded that in pediatric patients resuscitated from out-of-hospital VF, a cardiovascular cause was, identi- was identified in greater than 80% of the cases. These include primary electrical diseases, cardiomyopathy, congenital heart disease. Regardless of the cause, survival and neurological prognosis appear better than patients with asystole ac- or pulseless electrical activity. The study is limited by the retrospective nature analysis, which prevented the accurate assessment of VF risk in pediatric patients with pre existing heart diseases. However, these findings indicate the importance of resuscitation attempts in patients, in pediatric patients who suffer from ventricular fibrillation. The next article is increased risk of ventricular arrhythmias in survivors of -of out-of-hospital cardiac arrest with chronic total coronary occlusion by Yap et al. from rather than the Netherlands. The authors retrospectively identified 217 out-of-hospital cardiac arrest survivors with coronary artery disease. Unrevascularized total coronary occlusion or CTO was present in one-third of the patients at the time of ICD implantation. During a median follow-up of five years, patients with CTO had a higher incidence of appropriate ICD therapy in comparison to patients without CTO, with a hazard ratio of 2.07. The presence of CTO was not associated with a higher mortality rate. The authors conclude that CTO was an independent predictor for the occurrence of ventricular arrhythmias, but not for mortality. The next article is Profound Differences in Prognostic Impact or LV Reverse Remodeling After CRT Related to Heart Failure Etiology by Martins et al. from Diepenbeek, Belgium. The purpose of this study was to assess the relationship between the etiology of heart failure and the reverse remodeling and outcome after CRT. A total of 685 patients were included. They found that patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy exhibited a greater degree of improvement in LV ejection fraction than patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. A lesser degree of improvement in LV ejection fraction was associated with higher risk of all-cause mortality and heart failure hospitalization in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy, but not in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. The authors conclude that CRT results in reverse remodeling more in patients with non-ischemic cardiomyopathy than in patients with ischemic cardiomyopathy. The next article is a contemporary review entitled Induced Pluripotent Stem Cell Technology and Inherited Arrhythmia Syndromes by Russ et al. from Sydney, Australia. This review outlines how studies using induced pluripotent stem cell-derived cardiomyocytes are contributing to our understanding of the mechanisms that underpin disease pathogenesis and their potential to facilitate new pharmacological therapies and personalized medicine. The next article is a hands-on article entitled How to Perform Transconduit and Transbaffle Puncture in Patients Who Have Previously Undergone the Fontaine or Mustard Operation by Wom et al. from Yonsei University College of Medicine, Seoul, Korea. The paper included step-by-step instruction on how to perform these procedures. In addition to the above articles, the journal also published a Josephson and Williams ECG lesson, an image of high-density activation mapping during perimitral atrial tachycardia, and four EP News articles. I hope you enjoyed listening to this podcast. I'm Dr. Pengsheng Qian for Heart Rhythm.